You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Nick Bolters and I, Niels Kasterblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Nick, it is wonderful to be back with you this week. So much continues to happen between our conversations. And, uh, you know, now we have the highest rates in the U.S. since, I don't know for how long, but quite a long time. How are you doing? How are you keeping up? I'm doing very well. Um, happy Friday, Nils. Um, just looking forward for some summer. Very, very busy summer so far, I would say. Uh, significant amount of client activity. Um, but yeah, I'm looking forward to a break. How are you? Yeah, not doing well. It's interesting because it's not like it feels like the markets are particularly busy, but I, I do sense the same kind of um, activity underneath everything, which is which is. Good, I, I imagine. Um, now, before we dive into all of the things we have uh, lined up today, and as usual, you're bringing some, um, you know, really sort of academic uh, points that we're going to be, uh, or angles we're going to be talking about. I'm always interested to hearing kind of what's been on your radar, sort of a big picture, anything in particular that had caught your attention, um, it could be, you know, whatever you want to bring up, really, Nick, um, before we dive in. Um, where are you focusing your, your attention at the moment? Sure. So um, I think client activity is the one that typically determines, you know, how we, how we become busy. But also, uh, I think it's a proxy of how the market kind of performs as a, as a whole. So I think last time we spoke a couple of months ago, it was this pendulum between being more defensive or risk on, you know, I think this, this, this puzzling dynamic since the beginning of the year, I think more recently, at least I personally, uh, feel more of an optimism, you know, conservative, but yet optimism, you know, we start seeing a few more risk on trades or some of the more defensive oriented trades. Um, you know, we see clients wanting to reduce, if you like, the cost of carry uh, or possibly focusing more into the deep tail, obviously with VIX being um, very subdued. Um, you know, it's a big question mark as to whether we see in, um, in the real market what some of the um, fundamentals seem to be suggesting. So that's, that's the first point I would make. I think some of the, um, some of the actual activity on the trade side, um, you know, we see, I remember like a few months back, we discussed some of the work we have done over the years about dynamic uh, allocation between economic regimes and how beta assets perform across different inflation and growth dynamic uh, growth regimes. Uh, so we see some some interest, if you like, in, in those uh, kind of beta models uh, that incorporate uh, economic regimes. And in our world, uh, which is obviously the trend following slash cross asset world, this is still top of mind. Uh, we see more and more activity, I should say, um, since the beginning of the game. You know, both in terms of asset growth, but also in terms of client requests, analysis, and so on and so forth. Um, some of the work we've been doing recently uh, looks into different sources of premia. Um, you know, in the in the cross asset world, um, 
back in in I think in, in the first time that we spoke uh, with Rob, uh, it was back back in November, right? He was asking me some of my work uh, on on skewness. So this is something that you know we also spend a good amount of time. Um, you know, is that a trend following plus something probably um, versus nothing that I think you know, um, Jerry mentioned last week? Um, but this is certainly a place that um, you know we're looking to bring some value, if you like, uh, both on the design phase, but also on the, um, I guess, on the trade side. You know, trend, as as you know, and as you keep on kind of reiterating since the beginning of the year, is kind of lukewarm uh, year to date. You know, some good months, some um, not as good months, but you know. It's an average with barometer of like what 30, 40 ish or so, right? So that's that's where we're spending our time. Uh, but as you said, very very busy still, uh, and it's the last business day of July. Is it the yeah, last it or is Monday? Uh, no, is no, it it's not quite. Monday is the it's last Monday. one. It's Monday. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there Sorry. we are. My bad. My bad. There you are. It's interesting you say that. Uh, of course, right now I, I was going to update people on the trend barometer, which actually has gone up to forty-eight by close of business yesterday. So now we Bring are. It on. Yeah, bring it on. We're, we're almost there, right? But it's interesting you mentioned this thing about lukewarm trend-following returns this year. I would kind of turn it around and say, actually, I think it's been extraordinarily good because, and this is a well-known uh, you know, thing that happens, and that is often when you have a really strong trending environment, as we saw last year, there tends to be large givebacks. But I haven't really seen a lot of that. Few exceptions, okay, fine, but... Generally, a flattish uh, return so far for the indices. Some managers up four or five percent, which I think is a fantastic effort. Obviously, equities uh, almost making new all-time highs in the U.S. In Europe, some of the markets are making new all-time highs, and um, and and actually, this is um, kind of a good example of why people shouldn't always think about this as a crisis alpha investment because. We can certainly do well, even when there are no crises. Um, but we'll come to all of this good stuff. I'm getting ahead of myself. Nick, so. I think the, the, you know, the, the good outcome of the year is that obviously the March event, which was largely idiosyncratic and largely impacted performance across the industry on the CTA side, um, has been largely mitigated. Like it, it, it's basically uh, wiped out from, from the year-to-date performance. And that's a good thing, obviously. That's a great thing, for sure. As I mentioned, 48 on the trend barometer. Um, performance uh, so far, this is as of Wednesday because we're recording Friday uh, too early to get the Thursday numbers. Uh, down about 50 basis points for the beta 50, down about 1% for the year. Sokjian CTA down about one6 down about one6 for the year. Trend down about 2% for the month of July, down about 2% for the year. And the short-term traders index struggling a little bit more, down about 38 basis points in July, but down about 36 so far this year. Obviously, equity is having another great month, up 2.2 for MSCI World, up almost 17 for the year. World government bonds struggling a little bit with the last few days of, uh, of uh, yields going higher, so down about 36 basis points as of yesterday for the month. And the S&P 500 index up almost 2%, and up 18.18 so far this year. All right, Nick. Now, kind of there is a little bit of a theme uh, today in our conversation. Overall, you could say we we will tackle, um, or we will talk about at least kind of single stock trend momentum dynamics, which 
of course, is relevant in light of what we talked to Jerry and Andrew about last week, uh, as well as the next episode in our CTA miniseries uh, with Alan, uh, where he and I also invited Jerry in and talked more about um, his company rather than his new ETF and his uh, thing, his thoughts on on uh, in trend following in general. But as usual, I will not have read all the academic papers uh, that we're going to talk about, so I will let you guide us when we get to that. I'll do my best to keep up. But before we dive into single stocks and trend following, there is one topic that uh, we wanted to cover, um, but from a slightly different angle, because it is a topic that we uh, bring up uh, on a regular basis, and it is also a very important topic. But maybe we can shine a light on this in a slightly different uh, way today. And it relates to kind of portfolio construction, risk management, but specifically also in terms of how we size and manage positions. So I will pass it over to you and then we'll we'll see where we go with this uh, topic to begin with. Okay. Um, no, thanks. Thanks, Niels. I mean, th the topic is about static position or dynamic positioning, right? Uh, that's that's what we need to talk about. And I was kind of putting my thoughts together last couple of days as, as we're kind of preparing for for the call. Um, and I would probably start from my conclusion, and then I'm going to go back. Um, and my conclusion could be incorrect in some form, but I think stylistically is valid. So when we talk about dynamic positioning, ultimately, I think we're thinking more about a top-level portfolio approach in terms of allocation. When we think about static positioning, I think it is more about an asset-by-asset asset assessment that ultimately leads to us forming a portfolio as a collection of assets, rather than being really a portfolio that includes assets. You know, it, it might sound quite vague, um, but as we're going to go through some of the points I wanted to raise, I think in my mind, dynamic positioning is about a top-level portfolio management, whereas static positioning is asset-by-asset asset management that you end up holding like a number of assets that ultimately hold a portfolio. But that's a consequence of you holding the assets, not starting from a portfolio approach. So why did I get to this conclusion? So let me start from static positioning. Static position sizing basically means I have a number of assets, 10 for the sake of argument, each of which would have a trend signal. That's not the focus of the discussion right now, but in the presence of a signal, you know, we make a binary choice, pretty much saying I'm going to go long whatever is going up and I'm going to go short whatever is going down. Then I would expect that there is some form of utilization of correlation and volatility, at least to size the initial exposures, because specifically when we put different assets together from different asset classes, it makes no sense to just equally weight, for example. If I may interject here, Please. I would say... I think you're right about correlation, but not at the time of, of the trade. I think that's just from the choice of markets you choose in a static world. So long term, basically. Could be long term. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then from a, but, but clearly volatility assessment and, 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 and normalization does take place at the time of entry. Yeah. So in, 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 I guess in some simplistic form, you know, out of 10 assets, we wouldn't do a dollar per, you know, per asset, but we'll allocate a bit more to those that are least volatile historically or at the time of the initiation in those. Um, and, and also would allocate more to those that seem to be more diversifying to the rest of the universe in a, in a simplified term, uh, in, in simplified terms. Or it would penalize the exposure to those that are more volatile or possibly more correlated with the rest. 
because they just contribute too much risk. So we want to kind of downsize that effect. But that would be like just the initial allocation to the assets, which we then bring together. And I would suspect we would let the portfolio run. Obviously, the signals will be changing through time, but the allocation would not be affected unless either the signal shifts direction. So from being long, we need to go short, or possibly we get into a loss and some stop losses will kick in. And I would expect at the portfolio level, once we build those positions, we also have to account for the fact that, you know, if commodities are like 20 and, you know, and rates markets are two, we would want to allocate relatively similar risks between the two asset classes rather than the assets themselves. So I think there's some sort of top level or intermediate level at the sector level at the portfolio level as to how risk is ultimately split, at least on a maximum basis. Yeah. And I would say, I think that is probably a slightly more advanced way of doing it. I think if you just go back to where it all started, I would say the only thing people are concerned about at the point of entry is just, if I want to risk, say, $100,000 in dollar risk, how many contracts should I trade? I don't think there's any other thing that is accounted for at, at that point in time. But But I think maybe further iterations of it could do exactly what you said. But I just want to make that clear that for me, static right now in our conversation today is really the 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 quote unquote the original way of of doing it. Okay, fair, yeah. fair, fair. I mean, in 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 I guess in the world of some sort of prudent risk management, there is some expectation that if the asset groups are not fairly balanced, there has to be some form of penalty or or benefit from uh, having a more diversified universe within a particular sector or otherwise. But I I I, I get your point. So. To summarize, there's a signal on day one, which is a binary signal. We allocate on the base of some longer term variance and correlation analysis. There are some stop losses per position and optionally some form of risk awareness at the sector or possibly at the asset class level, pretty much. So, and I think that was what kind of made me think that, hey, static positioning really starts at the asset level. And at the time whereby there is no signal whatsoever, you're just concentrating risk to those few bets that seemingly have a good signal or possibly, um, actually that's a good question and I don't really have an answer. If everything has a signal, which is not even large one, how is the allocation done? It's, it's, it's a bit of a question mark to me. No, I think, for the again, the original way would just simply be to say, well, if I want to risk 25 basis points risk per market, I know I, there's a limit to how many markets I, have, I can trade. But if I add more markets, I'm going to limit that risk from, say, 25 basis points to 20 basis points. I think that's the kind of thinking from that's the original. That's the thinking around, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So what's now the dynamic positioning, uh, you know, sizing, um, I guess, story here? There's no day one anymore. Um, there is a continuous uh, monitoring of a signal, uh, which becomes larger or smaller and at times change direction. And we typically utilize that signal to dynamically increase or uh, reduce the gross exposure we have in an asset. And I think this is done partly for turnover uh, mitigation, you know, in, in, in case that the signal becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and at some point crosses zero. Uh, partly it's also done to be more thoughtful as to where we deploy risk if there is an argument 
that more trendiness should have more risk in the overall portfolio. So this dynamic sizing from a signal perspective is about making my bets more extreme when the signals are stronger. In addition to that, there's a risk management angle which says I'm going to vol scale my exposures dynamically, not just at the initiation. In other words, if an asset becomes more volatile versus all the others, I'm going to reduce the overall exposure. And there's a correlation as well uh, adjustment, which would again act in favor of the more diversifying assets and how their nature, all else being equal, uh, you know, evolves through time. Now, there are a few subtle dynamics here which on the vol scaling side might be beneficial for the portfolio as a whole, which has nothing to do necessarily with trend you know, in, 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 in the first stage. And that has to do with assets that typically have negative correlation between volatility, innovation and returns. So risk on assets typically, uh, mainly equities, um, you know, we can argue sometimes commodities, uh, but generally more risk on oriented assets. When they become more volatile, they end up underperforming. Now, momentum does it by itself, but vol scaling might be quicker at times in terms of reducing their gross before the signal change direction. So there's a byproduct here of performance and risk management that can help the overall portfolio or not, by the way, in, in, you know, in, in markets whereby vol is, um, vol is dropping, but the asset is falling. This is actually counter impacting performance. You know, rates had this dynamic back in the 70s whereby they, they were kind of increasing, but very gradually with price falling and volatility falling. Uh, so that's on the volatility scaling side, whereas correlation scaling is more important for top level portfolio management in terms of risk. It, that's purely a volatility targeting adjustment to make the overall portfolio hit some sort of um, vol. And then typically, again, we should have some sort of minimum and maximum exposures, some sort of global at the portfolio level, min and max exposures, which is primarily driven by liquidity, uh, liquidity concerns. Can I also interject a small thing here, uh, Nick, because one of the uh, uh, many of the conversations that we have on this topic, I hear the, the, you know, somewhat intuitive point saying, well, if you're hunting for an outlier, you want the static position because whatever happens, uh, you're going to have your quote-unquote maximum position on throughout. Intuitively, that makes sense. However, and I'm going out on a limb here a little bit, I'm sure there's going to be people who can test this and argue against it or for it or whatever. But in addition to what you just said before about often, and of course we know that um, one of our guests on the, in the CTA series, uh, Doug from Florin Court, he has mentioned this. That, and I think many, I think many people. I'd love to hear uh, what you think. Many people would say that volatility tends to increase around turning points. Okay, fine, but I think there's one thing we forget, and that is that actually when you have really nice, strong trends volatility tends to fall. And if that's the case, then actually dynamic position sizing allows you to have very healthy risk on in those trends. And therefore, I'm not so sure that you can make the simple argument saying, well, clearly if it's an outlier, you're going to be, you're going to make more money if you have static position sizing, I simply don't think you can make that 
black and white argument. There will be, in some instances, maybe uh, reasons for that. But I think there's going to be many situations where actually in a very long trend done correctly, uh, you might end up making more money from that. Because one, you might, during, say, correction phases or whatever, you might reduce a little bit, avoid some of the pain. When the volatility falls again, you might increase, you might get back to a really nice full position, etc., etc. And then again, around the turning point, again, this is in an idealized uh, world, you might scale out and uh, much quicker and therefore uh, capture more of the trend profit than you would otherwise do uh, in a static. So I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying I don't buy into the argument saying, oh, clearly, if you're only going for the outliers, because I think we are all going for the outliers, frankly, then one must be better than the other. I don't buy into that. I think I agree with you. And, and I agree with you from a different angle. And, and, and my angle has to, is related to some of my philosophical approaches on portfolio construction and design. Um, one of the principles I personally like uh, going for is concentration risk limitation. In other words, because you know, losses are hurting more than gains, as, as, as we all know, there's this asymmetric uh, treatment of, of, of gains and losses. Yeah. Uh, exactly, uh, by Kahneman. No, limiting concentration risk and smoothing the returns, um, effectively smoothing the returns, um, is beneficial from the, the, the one off and one in a, you know, in too many, uh, one in a million, probably, I don't know, like in one in very, uh, very few cases whereby you would have had significant outperformance versus having significant performance. And I think risk mitigation at the extreme level, to me, is more prudent risk management. But I can certainly understand another philosophy, that being, I want to have concentrated bets because these are the ones that pay off. It's just unclear to me which one of the two over the longer term is better because I think the frequency at which those extremes are occurring is too little to make any econometric assessment whatsoever. But precisely because an extra dollar of gain in the extreme is providing less uh, happiness versus a dollar of loss, uh, and that's the asymmetry that I was kind of talking about, I always vouch for more concentration limit, um, concentration risk limitation rather than getting the extreme bet when the bet is there and you know that's the only bet out of all um so i, I agree with you it's not clear cut but that's my personal preference uh and i think it's ultimately a philosophical point right once you're managing those portfolios so kind of summarizing on, on on dynamic positioning i think the objective of dynamic positioning is number one as a just kind of uh, said coincidental mitigation of concentration risk uh the second point is some form of dynamic budgeting of risk across assets or asset groups in a portfolio context that happen to be trending more than others. And I think that's purely coming from the fact of kind of aggregating positions um, and therefore naturally having more risk, let's say, in commodities because today they might happen to trend more and therefore the aggregation of those budgets that we allocate you know, give us a, a number which is greater than rates. Um, I think there is a theoretical optimality in the portfolio construction if we use some sort of mean variance then we you know we're trying to achieve the um, you know the best portfolios theoretically if we're using more like a risk-based oriented optimization you know in the presence of equal sharp ratios and correlations we have again optimality i vouch by the way for more risk-based allocations 
But ultimately, I think Dynamics Housing about portfolio as a whole and how we treat a budget of risk allocated across markets and sectors and long positions and short positions versus you know, a, you know, a, an asset by asset treatment that simply gives rise to a portfolio whereby its asset in isolation you know, has an exposure with some max loss and some max exposure associated to it. Having said all that, however, and I think that's my main conclusion, is that we should not disregard the fact that on anything we do when we build portfolios, there is some sort of duality or imperfect substitutes. That's the very technical term of basically saying that I can easily see links between the approaches. And, you know, and, and sometimes we need to look through and, you know, we look through those simple design choices and appreciate the fact that a stop loss rule is pretty much what dynamic volatility scaling kind of does. Now, if vol is spiking, we're reducing the exposure, which is pretty much the same thing as saying, okay, if that vol spike is actually impacting your trend, then your stop loss anyway would be hit. Of course, we can make the argument that the vol spikes and then you're performing, so you're not hitting a stop loss. But reality is specifically for more crisis alpha and, and, and risk on assets, vol scaling is acting like a stop loss. That's my point number one, right? So we can make that link They say, hey, I'm doing static positioning with a stop loss. Fine, I'm doing dynamic positioning with vol, but implicitly I'm saying I don't want to take too much vol because if the risk is increasing, I'm going to just reduce it. It's done a bit more dynamically, but ultimately that's what is, what is here to, to, to achieve. And that is that the asset level duality or relationship. And at the portfolio level, you know, if I think about some sort of a max limit exposure that I do not want to have in a static positioning context, this is pretty much catering about concentration risk and penalizing for volume correlation in a dynamic fashion. But again, done in a more kind of static basis, that's my max exposure, whereas we say, hey, we want to be a bit more dynamic on how correlation volatility is kind of moving. Um, so I don't think they're too distinct at the end of the day, um, narratives is just different perspectives that, however, we should, we sh we should um, accept the fact that there are linkages, right? That's why I think if we see two, two back they're going to look very, well, relatively similar. I'm going to say very similar, but they share commonality. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that uh, conclusion. I also want to just add one thing, and that is even those who use a quote-unquote stop loss, um, in some people's rules in calculating the stop loss, actually volatility is one of the parameters. And so therefore, the stop loss does react to changes in volatility. It's just not called dynamic position sizing. It's just dynamic risks sizing, or you could say. So I think that's important to uh, to mention as well. And no, I mean, I agree with you. I, um, I have never come across, uh, I have never, I, certainly I don't hope I've ever said that one is better than the other. I kind of pushing back a little bit, and I'm sure all the listeners who's I'm, who I'm pushing back towards, are those who will say categorically, no, 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 one entry, one exit, you know, uh, one stop loss is better. I just don't think you can say that, and I don't believe in, well, I know the numbers don't support that either. So I just think that that's important. Um, and as I've always uh, tried to, um, to promote, at least, and that is... I celebrate the fact that they are both good and have done well for decades because it means, for me at least, that the underlying methodology of trend following and the underlying kind of quote-unquote golden rules of trend following, 
are the ones that actually keeps this strategy so relevant, so potent, uh, and so robust um, through different cycles. So I think, you know, I'm glad you wanted to talk about this. Um, obviously, I've been beating this topic for a while, but now we have your perspective as well. And, and, and I think that's great. One last point, just to conclude, because you kind of reminded me, reminded me that obviously Jerry uh, was speaking last week. He was talking about, you know, he started discussing about how he thinks about trend following. He said, listen, we want to do trend and then just trend plus nothing. And I actually like the title, by the way. But anyway, he said like, no, trend. Um, now, and then there's a portfolio construction angle, which I think is important, but, you know, I'm not going to comment on that. The one thing I'm going to say is the following. Whatever portfolio construction technique we or might not use, unless the signal is informative, we're not going to get a performance right. So I think ultimately, the, you know, the, the signal itself is the one that is driving returns, and the portfolio construction is the one that is more about how prudent or not we are about portfolio construction risk and, and risk allocation and, and volatility targeting and so on and so forth. But genuinely, for a strategy to perform, the ultimate need is, is, is that the signal is well designed uh, and identifies the trends. That, that, that's the reason for it. No portfolio construction can go against a signal um, or can recreate performance out of a, out of a non-existent signal. That's, that, that's the point I wanted to make, which I think makes the two relatively similar at some point. Because the signals is there. Yeah. No, no. And, and I think, uh, yeah, they're going to be different in terms of performance year by year. But if you look over a 20-year period, they're not going to be vastly different because of that decision. They can be vastly different because of the quality of the signal, which is different. Which, that's uh, the point. That's the point. And because the performance is, of course, not similar. But anyways, I think we've uh, talked enough about that. Now we're going to wear the um, professorial hat that you wear sometimes at Imperial. We're going to talk about another topic, actually, that was relevant to last week's conversation, which is single stocks in trend and the difference between trend and momentum. Uh, it's one of the papers that you um, found. Uh, I think it's back from 2018. And I think, no, this is not the AQR paper. Uh, this is the cross-sectional and time series test of return predictability. What's the difference paper that I think you wanted to dive in first. So as I said, I have not read it, so I'm gonna pass the baton on over to you. Sure, so when it, why did I think of this one? Obviously, Jerry mentioned single stocks and, and trend following. And then that kind of reminded me of this work uh, in by, by Amit Goyal, who I happen to know, you know, he's a great uh, great academic and obviously the other co-author is, um, is Jake Edis was one of the two that came up with single stock momentum back in the 90s and single stock reversals as well. Um, it's a you know, very good academic pedigree going into this piece of work. Uh, that is indeed a 2018 paper. It basically comes up and says, you know, over the years and decades, we have been knowing that single stocks exhibit cross-sectional momentum, and I'm going to get to the definitions in a second. But very recently, at the time, that was like you know, five, five, six years uh, from, from the time the paper came out, that was 2012, 2011, um, you know, AQR had obviously come with um, you know, the very well-cited um, paper now that made time series momentum, in other words, trend following, um, something that academics started looking at. And you know, even if trend following at the time was primarily studied in academia, uh, outside of single stocks, um, it is easy to make the connection between a price continuation pattern 
applied either in a cross-sectional fashion or in a time series fashion. So they basically came up and said, okay, why are they different? Are they different in the first place? And if they are different, what makes them different? How we can bridge the gap? Should we bridge the gap? Which one is better than the other? Uh, that's, that's basically the, you know, the, the key focus of that paper. But because it starts from single stocks, it kind of remind me uh, of the discussion you had last week. And I was like, okay, that it might be worth kind of bringing it up um, and, and, and kind of summarizing it. So, I mean, I grew up uh, thinking that momentum is a purely cross-sectional dynamic. So you have a number of assets, you rank them on the basis of some historical performance, you buy the winners, you short the losers, and then you just get on with this either dollar-neutral portfolio or risk-neutral portfolio. It's typically done uh, you know, dollar-neutral if the volatilities are similar. And, and obviously what is important with this portfolio is that the bet is on winners outperforming the losers. It's not about the positively trending assets generating a positive return and negatively trending assets generating a negative return. I'll come back to that point. But it's more about a cross-sectional outperformance. In a market that everything is going up, you still have winners, you still have losers. In a market that everything goes down, you still have winners, you still have losers. So at any point in time, you build a balanced portfolio. Conversely, once we look into what academics call time series momentum, which is about just trend following, you just listen to the past performance of the asset and you don't really care about the rest. Basically say, if my asset had a positive return, I'm going to buy. If it had a negative return, I'm going to sell. And in every, if everything is going up, I'm going to buy everything. And if everything is going down, I'm going to sell everything. And it's only at times that my portfolio is kind of balanced and some are positive, some are negative, that is going to start looking more like a cross-sectional momentum portfolio. So ultimately, there are links, but also significant difference among the two. Um, and the differences have to do with, in a very, um, I guess, simplistic way, how much dynamic beta I end up having in my trend follower. Sometimes I'm in net long, sometimes I'm net short, even if there is some cross-sectionality, specifically when there is dynamic sizing, by the way, vis-a-vis -vis being always, quote-unquote, dollar neutral, or actually dollar neutral always, quote-unquote, market neutral. You know, that's a separate conversation as to how much market neutral you are by going long the top, short the bottom. And you know, they, they look into those kind of differences in, in the single stock space. Um, and, you know, firstly, they say, well, if we do trend following in single stocks, yes, it works. And it works even if you follow a one-month speed or a 60-month speed. So there is this type of kind of embedded market timing dynamic across single stocks in the same way as it exists with other asset classes. But if you were to do momentum, as in buying winners and sorting losers, you only get positive returns when you have like a medium-term look-back window. Very, very short-term windows would give you reversals. Very long-term win windows will give you reversals, which are more associated with value. So there are some differences there. Now, what I wanted to kind of mention is that the differences between the two are important to be understood because ultimately they drive the philosophical approach to building portfolios. So it might become a bit technical for a minute, but I think it's worth doing it. Cross-sectional momentum is driven by three dynamics, whereas trend is driven by two dynamics. Let me start from trend because it's easier. Trend performs well if there is serial correlation. Whatever goes up keeps on going up. Whatever goes down keeps on going down. Or, and or, if your universe of assets has unconditionally very large, either positive or negative expected returns. 
So if I tell you here's an asset that 90% of the time historically was going up, if you were to buy it, yes, you're going to make money. If an asset was going 90% of the time down and you're shorting it, you're going to make money. And I think we've done this, we've had a similar discussion a few, a few episodes back, probably like three, four months ago. You can still have no serial correlation and perform because you've been, for example, buying bonds and they have been appreciating because there's positive care, whatever. So trend can be driven by those two things, either serial correlation in the returns or over the longer term, large unconditional returns, positive or negative. Whereas momentum has three sources. The first one, thankfully, is the same between the two. You know, if you're going up and you continue going up and you're going down and you're going down, momentum cross-sectionally is going to work. But then there is this, the second one is a much, you know, that's the, um, I guess, the trickier one. That basically is lead lag cross-correlation. If I'm winning today, I'm predicting you losing tomorrow. And if you're losing today, you're predicting me winning tomorrow. So there's lead lag between assets. And that's the cross-sectional lead lag dynamic that makes momentum as a cross-sectional feature perform. The last thing, which is kind of similar to the trends one, when you have a universe, not with high unconditional returns, but high dispersed unconditional returns, it means that over the longer term, you have some big winners and some big losers. So statically buying and shorting them, you're making money. So there you are with two plus three reasons of existence. The first one being common, one in momentum being very idiosyncratic. And then the last ones are much more like longer term, unconditional. I don't think this is really as important for the conversation we're having. And so they go down the route of really understanding those drivers. And ultimately where they get to is in the following summary, if I try to summarize it well. When you build trend following, you have dynamic beta embedded. Sometimes you're net long, sometimes you're net short. And this has value historically. And what they do is the following. They say, how much net long or net short am I in trend following? If I take that net short or net long and buy, let's say, futures, and I add that into my cross-sectional momentum, I kind of start bring, you know, bringing them together. Because the cross-sectionality is always there. The question is how much net positive or net negative timing ability your, your, your portfolio has. And you know, by bridging that gap, their point is, you know, it's not that one is better than the other. Obviously, they run some sort of test. They, they have a bit of bias on, on, you know, in favor of cross-sectional momentum rather than trend following. But they ultimately make the case and say, well, we should not be comparing the two you know, at face value because one has dynamic betas that are purely driven by the way of the portfolio being put together and the other one is kind of dollar neutral. And those beta exposures, first of all, they seem to be rewarded, but secondly, make the comparison between the two unfair. And once you account for, for that, you know, the, the overall portfolio um, performance is very similar. Anyway, very long-winded answer uh, or summary, if you like, to effectively say that, yes, trend following in single stocks can work, and it does work, uh, and has been shown, at least in academia, to work. But the point I would make, and I think Andrew made the point last week, there is a dynamic beta component there, which I think is going to be much more biased on being long. Obviously, the question is, how much value does the short bring? Uh, I think last week Jerry said, not much historically, but I genuinely feel that there is some value to be brought around market corrections. 
The question is whether the cross-sectionality brings value. On that, I haven't, I haven't specifically done much more work, to, to, to be frank with you. No, I mean, that, that, that is interesting. And in, in some ways, um, I think our conversation with Jerry uh, is, well, we'll have to see how, how it goes. But on the other hand, I would say, well, we, we should already know because the, the, the underlying strategy he's employing now in the ETF is not new. He's been doing this for a while. Uh, so we, we 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 kind of should be able to just study and say, well, for example, uh, during the you know during the bear market of last year, twenty twenty two, did it actually help to to do it this way versus the other way, and so on and so forth. So yeah, people can look uh, these stats up, of course. But it is interesting. Yeah, I, I, one thing I would just want to add, and again, since I don't sit and crunch crunch numbers, I'd love to maybe hear your thoughts. And this, these things do change over time, naturally, of course. But I don't recall necessarily equities, certainly from an index point of view, because most CTAs trade the index. I don't recall them being the best <laughs> sector in, in the trend-following world, uh, even though it's probably where most, uh, certainly uh, DIY trend followers will start saying, oh yeah, I've heard this about tra- this strategy trend-following, I trade stocks and yeah, I should apply trend following to stocks and it's going to be great. I don't know about that, frankly, because I always felt that one of the secret sources of trend following is the fact that you apply it on so many different types of assets at the same time, not just a handful of different equity indices because of correlation. Now, of course, if you have a big universe of single stocks, maybe some of that is alleviated because the correlation will be lower than maybe between just a, a handful of uh, of uh, equity indices but we'll you know we'll follow it <laughs> that's all i can say i think um i mean last two two points i would make it is likely that some cross sectional momentum is brought in by the fact that instead of doing allocation at the index level it effectively neutralizes to some res- you know in some respect the sector biases um, you know, you allow the cross-sectionality. So to the point I was making on those academic, um, those academics trying to bring the two together, they said, listen, I can do my trend following being very similar to cross-sectional momentum plus my dynamic beta, right? In, in, in a way, that's what all they're saying. So dynamic beta is basically what the index would do. So I think what's happening now is bringing in some cross-sectionality or some cross-sectional momentum in what otherwise is a you know an index trend, I think that's that's probably some of the value. The second point I would make is that just going through those those papers and kind of reading through, uh, in, in, it reminded me a bit the discussion you have had with uh, with Bruno right from right. Quantica right because I think yeah. you know he was talking about not single stocks but he was talking about spread portfolios between markets and doing trend in, 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 in those spreads. So in a way, as a, as a philosophical approach to design, it's similar to cross-sectional momentum because you're not looking into out and under performances between markets. So that's the only th- other thing that it kind of reminded me of. Yeah. There's another dynamic in terms of, uh, I think, challenge. I say challenge, maybe it's not a challenge, but we, we were actually asked a question by one of our listeners, uh, Oliver, about you know if you have even if you trend follow single stocks given the fact that there is probably a long bias in long-term trend following 
be, you know, in in that. Um, are investors prepared to pay, you know, one, one and a half percent fee for being, quote unquote, utilizing a large part of the risk budget to that specific uh, sector? That's a different question. Nevertheless, it's it is somewhat relevant, but we'll see. Let's move on uh, just for the sake of time. Um, there was this paper that I mentioned actually also, or I remembered it, um, from AQR, which talks about single stocks, uh, single stock factor trend, as far as I remember. And this is also a paper that's a few years old uh, from recollection. Do you want to tie that into the conversation? Yes. So um, no, there's, there's obviously a trend at the asset level, whether that is single stocks or, or, or a, I guess, a global macro assets um, that we have kind of discussed. And, and then obviously that led me to remember, as you said, you know, uh, there's this AQR paper, uh, the 2019, I believe, published in Journal Portfolio Management. But also more recently, there's another paper came out, you know, came out last year, Journal Finance, and another one that is going to be published in, you know, in next month, uh, in August. Uh, all of all of which are talking about this factor momentum, this factor trend. So here we're you know we're still in the single stock space. Uh, we're looking into equity factors, um, namely value, quality, low beta. All these are cross-sectional factors. You know you rank the universe of stocks on the basis of some fundamental or price-based criterion. You buy the top, you short the bottom. You know whether you do it with an optimizer or you do like top decile, bottom decile. That's less of um, less of an important point for our conversation. It's a critical point from, from a design standpoint, but not for our conversation. And, and, and they make the following hypothesis. Um, they say, well, is there momentum in the factors? So can we argue that a factor performing well predicts outperformance for the same factor for the next month or two? Um, so they run some analysis and some sort of serial correlation analysis, some um, some lead lag regressions, and I'm talking about now you know, the selection of all three papers, and the answer is positive. In other words, for the large majority of factors, there is some sort of positive serial correlation, um, possibly shorter term than what we see in single stocks. And so it's not like a 12-month cycle, it's more like you know, a three-month cycle, for example. But you know, they, they document that. In, in, in the first instance saying, hey, empirically, if value does well, it kind of continues doing well for, for the next month or two, or if quality does well, it kind of continues. And then some of those some of those papers kind of go one step further and they even bring forward a quite radical, in a good way, hypothesis, that being that there is no single stock momentum. All there is, is serial correlation in factor portfolios that happen to give rise to, if you select positively, uh, if you select winners, and if you short losers, you're going to outperform. Because if, let's say, value is outperforming, then it is likely that high value names will be flashed out as winners. And if quality does badly, it might be that you know uh, high quality names are the losers. And therefore, the serial correlation at the factor level is giving rise to equity momentum. And then they go even one step further and they say, well, if equity momentum has historically been crashing, and we know that equity momentum tends to crash, um, they effectively say, well, possibly these are the times that the correlation, the positive correlation between factor returns is kind of breaking. So they create a, you know, an autocorrelation factor 
not a factor to be invested, but a factor to monitor. And whether that is kind of predicting momentum crashes, and they kind of say, okay, yeah, it's it's coincidental with momentum crashes. So, you know, where do we go with that? In my perception, and that's now my view, and I'm not quoting anybody else, equity factors for years um, have led academic research, and I think a good amount of what we do in the systematic, uh, in any systematic business, is obviously be inspired by those findings, and then expanding across the classes and and, and learning about portfolio construction, and so on and so forth. But they came to a point that factors themselves became entities. So if I talk about oil price today, I can equally talk about value. But the former is an asset, it's a commodity. The latter is a portfolio of seemingly behaving assets from some fundamental characteristic perspective. But the fact that they become entities and now we can have institutions as well as retail investors going out and getting you know, an ETF that is proxying for equity value, for example, or equity quality, can create to some extent or can have consequences of behavioral uh, patterns being brought at the factor level in the same way as historically were brought at the single stock level. So if we used to say, hey, we digest information um, in, a, um, in a rather slow pace and therefore we impose onto prices momentum, then at the time that those themes or strategies or factors become commoditized, there's a hypothesis to be made that you know these now factors, because they're accessible at a format uh, that you know was not possible otherwise. You know, ten years ago you'd you know you'd have to run an optimizer between like two thousand names. Now you can buy an ETF. It is likely that institutionalizing the access or you know democratizing the access were creating you know price patterns at the factor level, and and that's the point I would make. I think this momentum in factors could also be the artifact of the of the evolution of the offering and 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 the access. And it's no surprise that some of the, um, I believe some of the CTAs are not you know, utilizing um, factor momentum in their broader CTA offering. So this is not a single stock momentum anymore. It is factor momentum. So it somehow embeds the factor selection already before uh, you know we deploy longer or short exposures on that. So that's that's that 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 summary of the factor momentum space, still in the single stock, but in a different lens. Sure. Like no. sub, subgrouping, basically. Yeah, 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 exactly. Very, very good. Very interesting. Thank you so much, uh, Nick, for taking us into the academic world. I'll bring you out of the academic world now uh, with one of my more simple topics just before we wrap up. Also inspired, actually, uh, from, from the really good conversation we had with Jerry last week. Because ETFs, and I don't know how much, uh, I mean, I don't know if you wrap some of your products within ETFs, but... ETFs obviously have become incredibly popular and I'm not an ETF expert, uh, but clearly the ease of access uh, is one of the very compelling points. Uh, of course, I don't know if the same can be said about uh, mutual funds in the US. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Maybe the, maybe ETFs are even uh, easier to, to access. So there's a lot of excitement about uh, CTAs, strategies being wrapped in ETFs. Clearly, Andrew's success last year uh, was a big inspiration, I think, for, for people with the growth they saw. Obviously, uh, there's two sides to this coin. 
because, and I think this is the point that I wanted to bring up with you, you're bringing in largely a completely anonymous audience into a manager strategy by going the ETF route. We as managers have no idea really who the underlying investors are unless we've kind of already talked to them and 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 know that they will go the ETF route but generally speaking it certainly opens up the avenue compared to say a fund where they have to fill out a subscription document and the manager usually sees who goes in and out of course the excitement uh, on the manager side uh, or certainly on Jerry's side was also the fact that uh, well he uh, he believes that it's going to make it um, more appealing for for some investors because if they don't like the product, they can just sell it. They don't have to kind of um, <laughs> make it known to the manager that they're actually not so happy. And 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 I understand that as well. I mean, I kind of understand that as well. However, my concern, and I'm I'm thinking more like this on an industry level, I'm concerned with putting and giving investors at least certain types of investors, daily liquidity in a strategy that need, really needs to be held for 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years. I think that uh, when you do that, first of all, if the investors are unknown to the manager, the manager has no way of truly educating and getting to know the, the investor. And as I told you offline, and I uh, also mentioned this in my conversation that I did yesterday uh, with Alan and Jerry for um, an episode we're going to release very shortly in the CTA series, I said that I was listening. I listened to a conversation with Seth Klarman, the the super successful uh, founder of Baupost, uh, the hedge fund, the value uh, based hedge fund, where he talked about that he felt that one of the most important uh, aspects of their success was that they knew their clients so well that they had uh, educated them well before they even got into the product. So there was no misalignment, meaning there's not going to be a year where the client felt, oh, this was a bad year, and Baupost people felt, no, this was a great year because we did exactly what we set out to do. And I think that's a truly valid point. And I'm thinking of my own situation where I would say, I could probably call up 99% of my clients and they and we know each other, right? I think it's incredibly valuable because especially in a strategy where we go through these potentially long periods of flat or negative performance, doesn't mean the strategy is wrong uh, or doing something wrong or it's broken or anything like that. It just means that it's not in sync with, with what's going on in the markets or, or you could say the markets are simply not trending. But if you're an investor who just sees a daily NAV and you don't really know what's going on inside it, and actually also heard, I think he's called Dan Ariely, uh, the behavioral economics um, uh, author who came out with a new book recently, talk about the importance of, of transparency. He had some kind of fancy term for it, but it's to do with the fact whether you know what's going on inside a product. If you do that, you are more likely to buy it and hold on to it. Uh, and I think it's the same with our world, that if people really understood trend following, which is why I think a lot of managers does a, a great job in making themselves very available to the public and talk about trend following, they're more likely to stick with it. So 
So I guess what I'm, I'm not sure there's a real question in here. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. But I'm just generally concerned about our industry uh, embracing certain uh, rappers that actually I don't think really serve the investor nor the manager really, not just because it's low fees, but actually also from the potential turnover of, of clients they will see in these products. That's my concern. I also know there's some pros because maybe some people who would not otherwise get exposure to trend following can get it. I understand that. But that's my those are my thoughts, Nick. And maybe you can I think challenge um, some of that or not. No, the, the 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 only soft challenge that I would have, I don't think it's the daily liquidity per se, because I think daily liquidity can also allow institutions to be a bit more. Um, no, I said depending on the investor. Exactly, exactly, exactly. exactly. Yeah. I, I yeah. agree with you on this one. One hundred percent agree with you on this one. So, some of your thoughts, I think, in my mind, just can be summarized by the fact that there is, um, you know, any coin has, you know, two sides. Um, there's no kind of freelance, as we tend to say, in, in investing, and you know, you, you give something for for something that you know you, you have to pay for or you benefit from. So I think the minute we make some investment profiles available for more opportunistic, in a good way, you know, entry or exit, we have to accept the fact that you know it might become a vehicle um, that is not necessarily serving the purpose that it has been designed for. Now, obviously, there are regulatory um, uh, uh, regulatory implications here, and you know, as to whether we, you know, we, we should and make sure uh, that you know, consumption of financial products um, is done with um, um, with the appropriate level of understanding of you know what we're investing in, uh, and that is not necessarily what we're discussing today, but is of of of, of ultimate importance. But having said that. I, I, I certainly share your view on some of those strategies being more long-term strategic allocations for total portfolio completion, rather than I'm buying, you know, and you know, a share of stock A and a share of stock B and you know, a trend-following EDF. Um, I, I don't think that this is the purpose. Um, you know, whether that is the right format uh, for the targeted audience, potentially that being you know, discretionary managers. You know, it, it's a good question, um, but I don't disagree with you on opening up an architecture, not making it more open, but making it more accessible is certainly likely to become a victim of opportunistic bets that are not aligning with the investment premise in the first place. Now, how do you achieve that? I think you know, education is the most important, uh, you know, most important angle, but I think there are some as I said, higher level or possibly separate discussions to, 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 to be had as to what can and cannot be you know, in, in, in those formats. I don't necessarily think that there is, there is certainly risk associated, but I don't think it's the ultimate investment purpose that can be met by just going in and out. I think we've had a lot of discussions as to how dynamic we should be about those allocations and how instead more strategic rather than acting as, as, as a consequence of some sort of regret. I don't think it should be, oh, last year I did well, I should buy it now. Because that's not how I should be looking at it. So the question is how it's ultimately utilized. So I, I agree with you. Yes, but unfortunately, as you also know, Nick, that's how most people make the decision, meaning, oh, it did well last year, I better get in. We Which, all do, by the way, right? You know, well, all of us all are do. victims is, of behavioral this is, biases. This is I, I found exactly myself right. so many times saying, I'm now a textbook example. I'm doing exactly what I should not be doing. Like, it's human nature, right? 
Yeah, which is actually, and I'm not an expert uh, at all in private equity, but I think that's the only thing I can really point at where I'm saying, yeah, that's a great advantage. You can't get out. <laughs> so, so um, I think I th- uh, exactly. Well, I think uh, no, said in a different way, a return smoothing has some virtue. Um, I think um, who is it? Antilmanen. Uh, oh, he's, yeah. been, sure. he's been quite vocal, you know, he's a great guy. And uh, I think he, he has taught all of us uh, over the years as to how we should be thinking about systematic investing. I think he has made some comments historically about how return smoothing, um, you know, has more of a behavioral effect than an actual investment effect. You know, setting aside um, how risk management should operate, I think a return smoothing just fights against behavioral biases specifically for long-term mandates. Well said, my friend. Um, And by the way, we are lucky in the sense that two of our favorite CTA ETF managers, they make themselves incredibly visible and available to the public. So, uh, so, so that we, uh, we're, we're grateful. We're grateful for that. All right. Well, if you like these conversations, I would love if you would take five minutes of your time, maybe even four, and leave a rating and review. Just uh, go to your favorite podcast platform and do that. It really does help uh, the show grow and for more people to discover it. Uh, if you have questions for what we do every week here on the Systematic Investor Series, you can inf- email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and, of course, to any of the other series uh, as well. On that note, we're going to wrap up the conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, and... Uh, We will be back next week, or I will be back next week with Alan. So this will be uh, your chance to send some emails or some questions in for him to uh, tackle. And um, with that, Nick and I are going to say thanks so much for listening. And we do look forward to being back uh, next week. And until that time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor. 